You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. So some of us, even as adults, uh, some of us like storms. I had to drive through a couple of storms this past week, drove from Florida to Mississippi, back to Florida, back to Georgia, uh, all over the place in the past seven or eight days. And, uh, but some of us, we, we enjoy those. And that's usually because we're not right there in the middle of the hurricane. So uh, if you enjoy watching those hurricanes come through, we usually enjoy watching those things from a distance. You turn on the Weather Channel or CNN, Fox, whatever you're watching, uh, a video online. And there are a couple of ways of analyzing and looking at storms. One is the type of person who is sitting at the news desk, and they're in the studio where the air conditioning is on and the cameras look nice and they're not falling down the wall. And uh, like there's, there's that kind of person who's reporting on those storms. But then there's the other person who's out there in the middle of the storm, and they're actually there with the wind howling. And you've seen those videos, and the reporter is there, sometimes with an umbrella, which is interesting to me, uh, just out there in the middle of the storm. But the news station is trying to tell you and show you just how strong that storm is. And the person is sitting there pushing against these 80-mile-an-hour winds. They've got their microphone, and they're yelling into the microphone, and there's buildings flying by and cows and, and, and all these, these roofs that are going by this person in the back. You're like, that person's in the middle of the storm. That person's life is in danger. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So there's two different types of ways of looking at storms. One is from the studio desk. Uh, Now we're going to throw it over to our news reporter who's there on the ground. And that person's yelling and screaming, and they're like, back to you. And the person in the news desk is like, oh, well, thank you very much for the report. Now on to sports, you know? So there's two different ways. One is simply understanding something about the storm. The other is being there in the middle of that storm. And so for some of us, The storms of life that we just read about, you're like, I understand what it means to be right there in the middle of it. Some of us for life, and it could be right now, or it could be in the past, or you know somebody else who's dealing with things like the loss of friends, or the loss of a job, or someone who is sick, or maybe you just had a relative die. Maybe there's some sort of adultery that's been committed um, in your marriage or with somebody else's friend. Maybe uh, your child moved away. Maybe uh, you, there was a, you were uh, given a child and it was born with a disability or you've lost children, you've lost parents. Like, we, we understand these things cognitively, but for some of us, we've experienced those things personally. And here's the beautiful thing about the Psalms. As we've been going through the Psalms, the Psalms are not just happy-go-lucky. It's not like, hey, let me read the Psalms for encouragement. Okay, these are all happy. We've talked about how most of the Psalms are actually about sadness, Psalms of lament. And so as we're looking at Psalm chapter 88 today, know this, that Psalm 88 is perhaps the bleakest, the darkest of all Psalms. In fact, it's been called the darkest Psalm. Some people call it, Spurgeon called it, the dark night of the soul. And so as we look at Psalm 88, some of us here this morning are like, yes, that's where I am right now. And this is immediately applicable. And you're like, man, yeah, you're going to be on the verge of tears walking through this psalm as we talk about this. For others of you, it's going to be like when you get on an airplane and uh, the, the stewardesses are, are there, and when you get on the airplane, you sit down. Normally, you pop your AirPods in or something, and they get there, and they give the demonstration of, in case of an emergency, here's what's going to happen, and these things are going to fall from the ceiling, and make sure your seatbelt, and you, you just kind of tune it out, right? You understand, like, if there's really an emergency on the plane, 
putting on your seatbelt is probably the least of your concerns at that moment. So, uh, so you're just, you just kind of tune them out. And if you've flown more than once or twice, you see them, they're doing their thing, and you could probably do it as well. It's just like, eh, here we go talking about airplane safety again, whatever. So for some of y'all, as we go through Psalm 88, it's like, yeah, that's me right there in the middle of it. For some of you, this is going to be similar to an address made on an airplane. You're like, eh, I don't really need this right now. But I would encourage you, even if you're not right there in the middle of it, ground zero in the middle of a storm of life, you're going to need Psalm 88 at some point. It, it may be in the near future, or it may be in the distant future. But if we walk away with nothing else, I want you to see this. It is okay to not be okay when you pray. It's okay to not be okay when you pray. So Psalm 88, I'm going to walk through the passage uh, I'm going to walk through it. It's got three sections. You'll see these things up on the screen. And then I want us to go back and, and make a little bit of application at the end. So here are the three parts that we see of this passage. Verses 1 through 9, we see abandon. And then we see the author arguing with God. Then in the last part of the psalm, we see an accusation against God. Um, this, this psalm is, is, is tough for me because I'm not in the middle of a storm. I'm not, I don't, I don't feel great this morning. But when I think about folks in our body or extended friends and family, we've, we've got a family friend, his wife passed away this past week at 43. She um, went to cardiac arrest about a week, week and a half ago. Something happened with her brain, it shut off. So they pulled the plug on Wednesday because there was no more life in her brain. We have others in this body who are, who are dealing with extreme depression, where, where they literally cannot get out of bed, and they don't know why. M my wife's grandma, I, she's, uh, I mean, possibly about to die. She's unsaved. So when I think about the folks in this body and the things that we're struggling with, those who are sick, marriages who are beyond being on the rocks. They've already hit the rocks, and they've, they're all but shattered. I, I look at Psalm 88. I'm, I, I cry out with this psalmist from the darkness, and, and this is heavy. But we approach this text with heaviness because that's life. Again, not even so much for me. But when I, when I consider the struggles of folks in this body, I'm like, man, that is, that is incredibly difficult. And so even as we read this, be mindful of those around us who are like, man, this is in the midst of that darkness. Just be with them, standing there, sitting there. We'll make it a lunch, probably. I promise. It says there at the beginning of Psalm 88, and if you see there what's called the pericope at the, at the top, those letters in bold, if your Bible has it, it says, it says, I cry out day and night before you.
Can we just pray for a second? I'll be honest before we do. I, um, Uh, y'all just y'all pray for me as I as I preach this passage. I'm gonna pray for our hearts. Father, we cry out to you this morning. We know that you're in control of all things. We know that your will is perfect that your ways are just. We know that you are merciful and gracious to us in the midst of so much that happens in our lives. I pray now that we would not be running from those things, but I pray that we would press into your heart, into the heart of the, of the psalmist who wrote this chapter. I pray that you would give me the words to say to these folks this morning, that my words would be your words. I pray that you would give me clarity of mind, clarity of reason. Um, the ability to see these words on these pages. We humble ourselves before you as your people. In Christ's name, amen. The psalmist begins like this. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Let's stop right there. Let's look at this abandon as we consider the psalmist. He feels alone. He feels like God has abandoned him. Who, who is this guy who is writing? So if you go back and look at the beginning of your chapter, it probably tells the information there, but it says a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master. So this is a song for all of those in attendance to sing or to read. According to Mahalath Lianath, a masculine, which means a prayer whispered, which means it's really hard for them to say. It's really hard for them to sing 
of He-Man, the Ezraite. So there's a guy named He-Man who's writing this song, ironically enough, out of complete weakness. So this isn't just some, hey, let's all get together, and this wasn't just written through the centuries. This was a guy named He-Man who is writing this song. But it begins, he says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night before you. That, that word cry there is an intense expression of pain. It does not get any more heartfelt than that word cry. We're like, oh yeah, baby cries, or I cry about this, or uh, you know, a sappy movie comes on, and it's like, ah, I'm crying about that. This word in the Hebrew is from the gut, from the pit of this man's soul. He's crying. It doesn't get any worse than this. From, from he-man's soul, he's saying, I cry out to you. Verse number two, he says, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. Now, this begins a, a lot like a lot of psalms do. It begins with, hey, this, this may be positive. This may turn out really nicely. Let's go before the Lord and let's cry out. But just so you know, this is where the optimism begins and ends. Everything else from here is downward, right into the pit of despair. Now, we don't, we don't know what caused this man to cry out. We don't know if it was physical pain, if it was mental anguish, if it was spiritual temptation, we don't know if it was internal consequences or outward circumstances. We don't know what the situation is, but we just know that this man is crying out to pain. So whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're going through, we know, okay, I can identify with He-Man because he's crying out. We don't know what it is, but he's crying out. Verse number three, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. Now notice here, as he's crying out to God, he's saying, my life might as well be in hell. Here's what cynicism does. I was called cynical this morning by someone. Whether it's true or not, we'll let it ride. I've got reasons for why I'm not. But let's just say, I, but here's what cynicism does. Cynicism pulls away from reality. Because cynicism at its root is admitting there is no hope. But here's what this author is doing. He's not saying, man, I'm cynical, therefore life is as bad as it gets. No, cynicism pulls away. This man right here is getting in the face of God and saying, God, why are you making these things happen to me? There's nothing worse than the silent treatment. This cynicism is the silent treatment. He may is not saying, you know what, God, I'm not going to talk to you. God understands how we communicate the only time that God is concerned about our communication with him is when we're not talking to him. So the author is not cynical. He's not saying, oh, man, woe is me. All is dark. My life is in Sheol. I'm done. I'm... No, he's in the face of God. He's screaming in the face of God. And God's like, okay, that's fine. Come scream. Come holler at me. Some of you are like, yeah, I want to I resolve situations rather than the silent treatment. We don't know what the situation is, but he's in the face of God. He says, I've gone down uh, to the pit. Now, this is not in Sheol that represents hell. But when it says, I've gone down into the pit, right there in the middle of verse number four, this is not hell. This is literally a hole in the ground. The author is saying, I have literally gone into a hole in the ground. That's what he's saying. That's the way my, my soul feels. Like, it's just, it's just a hole. It's just here. Many of us know that the mind can descend further into darkness than the body can. The mind can descend further into darkness than the body can. 
Spurgeon said, you can only harm a man so many times before he eventually dies. But the soul can be severed over and over, even a thousand times in an hour, and still not die. So we see the anguish of this man. He's like, man, this just is hitting me one after another. I don't know how to stop this. He goes down into the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Verse number five, he's like one who is set loose among the dead. Literally, he, that set loose means, hey, I've got, I've got no place to live. I have no ties to earth anymore. That, that word set loose means he's freed. He's freed among the dead. That's the only place where he feels comfort and solace and identity. No more with the living. He says, I only feel like I belong with the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember with no more. For they are cut off from your hand. And we think about hell sometimes. And we think, man, I don't, I don't want to burn forever. But the greatest disparity when it comes to not being with Christ forever is being eternally separated from him. That's even worse than burning forever. Being separated from God. And here the author says, I feel like I've been cut off from your hand. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit. I'll notice in these next few verses how many times he blames this on God. He's not saying, hey, here are my circumstances. We don't know where they are. But now he turns and he says, you are the problem. He feels like God has abandoned him. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. That literally means a dungeon. He says, you have put me in a dungeon. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. Selah. In other words, that word right there in, in, in verse number seven, you overwhelm me with your waves. He's saying, I've cried out to you. That word overwhelm is actually, you answer me, or you afflict me. He's saying, God, not only are you not answering me the way I want you to, but here's what you are, here's what you are bringing into my life in the midst of my darkness. You are bringing these waves. But then it says, Selah. This is... This word means to rest or to stop and think or to meditate on these things. It's similar to a, a swimmer who's, who's swimming against the current and all of a sudden these waves are hitting him one after the other. And Selah, th there's a break in the waves and it's like, oh, let me come up and breathe just for a second. There's another wave coming, but just rest, just stop and think. He doesn't say here, Selah, stop and think about the goodness of God. He says, stop and think about the separation from God. He says, man, okay, before I keep going, before I, before I accuse God, just be reminded that it feels like God has abandoned me. There's a tension between even here, he feels cut off from the hand of God, but what does he call God in verse number one? He says, oh Lord, God of my salvation. But here he's like, there is no saving. And so there's a, there's a break between what the author knows in his mind and what he is feeling in his heart. He says, stop and think about that. It's difficult to understand. This is, by the way, this is not, the author's not saying, hey, let me put together a thesis or a treatise on suffering. Let me write for you a doctrine and a theology book. So when you get to chapter 14 in this, in this doctrine book, you can see this is how we treat suffering. He's not saying that. He is here expressing his feelings to God, to the creator of the universe, right there in his face. 
You see, God doesn't want us to be, he doesn't, God doesn't say, you know what, he man, I don't want to listen to that. At no point does God step in and say, no more. At no point does God in this passage respond and say, you know, I'm going to save you out of that. And here's why, because God doesn't want all of our prayers to be neat and tidy and theologically accurate. And as we cry out to God, let me make sure I use the biggest and the best words possible. God wants to hear from us, from our hearts. And there's nothing wrong with that. If there is, then Psalm 88 wouldn't be in the Bible. So your prayers don't have to be precise and accurate and pretty and put together and have this beautiful flow to them. As you cry out to God, it's okay to not be okay when you pray. That's what that Selah means right there. Just stop and think about, even in the midst of tragedy, what has brought you to this. But then he keeps going in verse number 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a whore to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. Literally, what that phrase means is he feels like, again, he's in a hole He's in a pit, a literal hole in the ground. And when he feels like it's being shut in around him, it, it feels like there is a casket being built around him. He says, life is it's over, it's hopeless, it's pointless. I'm alive, but I but but identify with the dead. So he says, I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. This casket is being built around me. The beginning of verse number nine, my eye grows dim through sorrow. He's completely discouraged. The eye represents the vitality of life. So he says here, he says here, my eye, he doesn't say eyes, he doesn't talk about physical eyes, he's talking about his, the, the eyes, the, the window to the soul, right? You look in someone's eyes, are they lying to me? Are they telling me the truth? Are they beautiful? You have beautiful eyes. Oh, you've got weird eyes, you know, whatever it is. He says here, my vitality is gone from me. So we see the abandon. But then we pick up in verse number nine, the second half of it, and we see the argument. He continues, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or their righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He, he says here, he begins arguing with God. Because he doesn't want to die. If you look right there at verse number 11, is your steadfast love, that, that word in the Hebrew is chesed. Everybody say chesed. That, that's the word we, we translate to steadfast love. It means everlasting, never-ending, grace, mercy, love. It's, it's the deepest emotional word that we see in the Hebrew, in all of the Old Testament, chesed. And he says here, is it declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? In other words, is it declared in Sheol? This guy is completely hopeless. He wants to avoid the grave. You see, we don't. We, we think the, uh, the Old Testament saints, they should be able to pass New Testament exams. But notice, this author doesn't have Philippians 1 to go to and say, oh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. No. For some of us, it's like, well, is, is that encouraging? No, it's not encouraging because death is bad. God doesn't just save us through death, but he saves us from death. That's why he, all throughout the Old Testament, 
He saved the Israelites from the hand of the Pharaoh. He brings them through on dry ground. Even David, who wrote most of the Psalms, he, he brings them through. He doesn't want him to die. Death is the enemy. So the author here is saying, man, it, it feels like death. This is as bad as it gets. He's arguing against God. But then in verse number 13, we, fi- we finish with this accusation. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. He says, we go back and think about that accusation. In verse 13, he he has said so far that, that God has answered him. He's overwhelmed him with waves. But if you look at verse 13, he says, my prayer comes before you. And what he, that literally means is he's saying, I'm accusing you, God, of this. My prayer, he's not just saying, my prayer comes before you as, as a sacrifice. He's saying, God, this is your fault. He's confronting God. He's accusing God. Verse 15, he's been afflicted and close to death for my youth up. In other words, he's felt this for a lot of years. This is nothing new. This is something that's been there with him. I think sometimes we think that, man, somebody is struggling. They're depressed. They're sad. They're melancholy. Man, just have, just have greater faith in God. I, I, somebody told me a, a couple months ago, uh, I was sharing some things with him, and, and this guy said, uh, a brother, he said, uh, he said, the Bible says, do not be anxious for anything, so therefore I'm not anxious. I thought, well, bless you, friend. <laughs> like, that is awesome. It, that must be real nice. I've got some people you go tell that to. Just tell them, hey, you know what? You're anxious. Don't be anxious. Oh, okay. I wanted to say, you're like, oh, Michael's so blunt. I'm not as blunt as I, what happens in here, okay? I do have a filter. It's, uh, it's real thin and, and often uh, clogged, but like it's there. But I thought, do you struggle with any sin, dude? Is there anything you struggle with? Because the Bible doesn't say just don't be anxious. It says a lot of stuff not to do. We haven't and cannot reach perfection. Not in this life. And so lest you think that I've completely arrived, I don't struggle with anxiety at all. I don't struggle with depression at all. All right, then what else do you struggle with? Let's not look down on someone else because we can't put a finger on what is causing them to be grieved. We don't know what is grieving one of the authors of the Scripture. So lest we think or you think that you are better than even the author of the scripture and you know more than this guy does, I would warn you to tread very carefully, friend. He says, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. That word helpless there literally means petrified. You ever wake up in the, in the morning or in the middle of the night and you've slept on your arm and you go to, you go to turn off your alarm clock or touch your phone or something and you can't, and it's like your arm is just there, you're like, ah, it's attached, but I can't, I can't move it. You ever do that? You try to wiggle your fingers and you can't? That's what that word means. Well, you will. 
<laughs> That's what that word means when it means helpless. It means I know this appendage is attached to my body, but I can't do anything about it. It's petrified. I'm helpless. I can't do anything. I feel numb. I feel like there's, there's no life in me. He says, I feel helpless. Then he finishes this chapter. If you look down at verse number 18, and if you have an ESV like I do, the last word is darkness. And the ESV has a kind of a weird way of phrasing that last line right there. But that's because in the ESV, the last word is literally darkness. So what the author wants us to walk away with is darkness. You write a letter to somebody, you say, love, your, your name. Sincerely, whatever it is. This author says, darkness. That's what I want you to walk away with, is darkness. There's no Disney ending in this. It, it doesn't end happily ever after. I was listening to a podcast yesterday about The Little Mermaid. Uh, it's uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. And he was talking about how in the original, The Little Mermaid, which was written by uh, Hans Christian Anderson, I think, um, he, he wrote it, but everything does not turn out well in the end. The, story, the original story of The Little Mermaid was based on his life being rejected by a lover or a hopeful future lover. He's like, man, this is, does not turn out well. But our Disney movies took that, and then, you know, Triton comes in and saves the day and vanquishes, you know, the evil Ursula into the depths of the sea. And then the princess, I think she becomes a, a human, right? She stays a human, and they get married happily ever after. That's the way almost every movie ends. You hate watching movies where it's ambiguous at the end, much less when everybody dies in the end in a bad way. My favorite movie is The Notebook. You know, in, in the end, even though people, they, they die, it's like, oh, well, that was, that was really comforting. And I love that soundtrack. And I, listen, I love listening to Billie Holiday, you know, seeing that, you know, in a, you know looking into her eyes. And it, it, that's not the way this ends. This ends just with darkness. He says, my companions have become darkness. The end. There is possible unrelieved pain and suffering in this life. You may get to the end of your life, like he says, for many years, from my youth up. Some of us are more youthful than others. You may, for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, live in utter darkness. But yet we run to Psalm 88. That's what this guy says. He says, I've been in darkness. I live in darkness. So here's the question I want us to answer. Why does God want us to pray our pain? Because we don't just look at this and say, oh man, we don't, we don't look at this cynically and, and then back away. Oh, well, life is, life is bad. Life is terrible. All right, let's move on. Stinks for you. Here's what I want us to see. Whether this is you this morning, you're like, man, I'm in the, I'm in the, the pit, the hole, the casket of utter darkness. Or if you're like, yeah, I know somebody or I've been there, or I feel like I may eventually be there. We need to answer this question. Why does God want us to pray our pain? I think the first reason is this. God wants to hear our prayers. God wants to hear our prayers. In his grace and his mercy, he does not want us to run to pills. He doesn't want us to run to alcohol. He doesn't want us to run to porn or to materialism or to entertainment or to Netflix. God wants us to pray our pain. We pray our pain because God wants to hear us. 
He wants to hear from us. That's his desire is to be close with us. I thought about this this past week. Um, I wrote this on my phone for a future sermon, but um, uh, I'll tell y'all. Uh, we were staying in a hotel in, um, in Orlando. We were, went to D- Discovery Cove on Thursday to make all of Shannon's lifelong dreams come true. And so, uh, and in return, she posted uh, ridiculous photos of me. So um, that's true love right there. So as we're there that, that night, um, Axel wasn't feeling well. And we're about to go to bed, and Kingston's sleeping on the sleeper sofa, and I'm about to go to bed. And he says, he says, Daddy, can you come lay down with me? Now, in that moment, I thought, God, I am tired. I drove 400 miles yesterday. I've, I've been on the road for, at that point, 10 days between beach camp and my sister's house in Mississippi, my, my gut was, nah, I'm going to go lay down and pass out. But I thought, you know what? I have a choice to say yes or no. But here's the beautiful thing about the Father. My character is flawed. I did go lay down with Kingston, by the way, and fell asleep. <laughs> and it was great. But the Father cannot say no to that request. Our Heavenly Father. If we plead his presence based on his character, not based on what we deserve, he says, yes, I will come and spend time with you. I will come and sit with you. I will come and lay down beside you. I will come and listen to you. He wants to spend time with us because of who he is. He wants to hear our prayers. Why do we pray our pain to God? Secondly, because he wants us to be a people of reality not a people of fantasy. And if we see here, oh, verses three through six, my soul is full of troubles. This is, this is reality. Our soul is there sometimes. It's, it's not some, some fake news. But, but for Christians, we think that we are always supposed to be experiencing the peace and calm that comes through Christ. And here's what's happened, friends, is that we as Christians who think that we're supposed to always be experiencing peace and calm, we show up on Sunday mornings or whenever you see other folks in this body and you act happy, but in reality you are falling apart. But that's because we've taken Psalm 88 and we're like, "Ah, yeah, you know what? Let's just sing our theme song, right guys? If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. All right, see, the kids know that because we teach them that. I'm in right out, right up, right down, right happy all the time. You ever seen that as a kid? That's our theme song. And if you're not those things, then something's wrong with you. Let's avoid that. Let's just put your happy face on. Anybody get into an argument with your spouse on the way here? Anybody throw something at your kid? It, I did not walk. I walked over before, before them, thankfully. But I know people who do that. Okay. But then you, you get here, you're like, put on a smile. Good morning. God bless you. (laughs) Yes. Amen. Forget the whole past week. That's just the last two minutes. If you think that everything in life is going to turn out well in this life, you might as well rip out Psalm 88 from your Bible. 
I also don't think it's any wonder that when we evangelize the lost, when we preach to the, to the world, hey, here's what it means to follow Christ, and everything is going to be happy, and everything is going to turn out well, and it's all about your peace and your calm and your prosperity, and things are going to go well for you. It's no wonder the world looks at us and says, no thanks, because that's not most of life for them. We, we don't have very much to offer the world who is struggling and in pain and in despondence if all of the Christian life is just happy and with a smile. We must be people of reality and not people of fantasy. Why do we pray our pain to God? It reminds us that he is in control of the chaos. It reminds us that God is in control of the chaos. Our prayers are not, hey, let me just give this to God, but it's a reminder of who God is. So lest you hear, hey, I'm just going to go scream at God. I'm just going to go holler at God. In the midst of that, we are to be reminded in the same way that He-Man was here in this psalm that he is in control. That's why between verses 6 and 8, six times does he use that word you or your. He says, this is you, this is your. We, we have here a picture of someone crying out in helpless and hopeless desperation to the creator of the universe. And you know what the Bible calls that? Faith. It calls it faith. For most of us, if we dot all the theological I's and cross all of our philosophical T's, then, oh, that's true faith. You're like, oh, that person's solid. You know what? When you say, hey, man, that person's solid, you know what that means? That person agrees with me because I'm solid. That's what that means, and that's how you often introduce somebody. You're like, hey, tell me about what they believe theologically. Oh, well, they're solid. They're solid. What is their view of God? Ah, well, theologically, no. This here is faith crying out to God in desperation. Should you find yourself in the midst of deep, dark, this passage is hopeful because what it means is it's possible for you to have faith and feel burdened beyond your strength. It's possible to have faith and to feel like God is hiding from you. It's possible to have faith and to wrestle with difficult questions. It's possible to have faith, and yet every day with Jesus just isn't sweeter than the day before. It's possible to have faith in the things that you know to be true are not taking residence in your hearts and in the way that you feel. It's possible to have faith and to feel like God has abandoned you. We must be people who live in reality, not fantasy. But we're also reminded that God is in control of the chaos. Why else does God want us to pray our pain? He wants us to pray our pain because it reminds us that death is our enemy, not our friend. You see, the Greeks, they would separate the body from the soul. And so death for them was not a huge deal. But if you read Revelation chapter 20, after God the Father destroys Satan, demons, hell, everything else, sin, the last thing he destroys is death. Death is not just another part of life. It is our enemy. That's why when Lazarus died, what does Jesus say? Oh, well, let's go have a celebration of life. Let's, let's go have a memorial service. No, he grieves. Because grieving is good, it's necessary because death is bad. 
Why do we pray our pain to God? Because God blesses vulnerability and openness. God blesses that. It's, it's similar to a diamond. A lot of the ladies have on diamonds this morning. Some of you ladies are looking for a diamond to wear. <laughs> Some of you guys need to be saving up money to per, put a diamond on that. But a diamond is formed under its coal, which is, I've got a bag of lump charcoal at my house. It's not worth a whole lot, maybe $17 for a big old bag of it. That's because it hasn't gone through time and pressure and years and decades of that to form something beautiful. That time and pressure and temperature is what makes us vulnerable, what makes us worth something. God blesses that in the end. Lastly, why does God want us to pray our pain? Because it points us to Jesus as our only hope. This passage reminds us of the darkness, of the dark night of the soul. But the beautiful part of this is this is not the only chapter in the Bible. This is not where the Bible begins and ends. This is part of it, and this is part of the reality of our Christian life. That's what some commentators will take us to Psalm 22. Some would say, hey, let's look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Go there with me. When you consider the Psalms, even within the Psalms, the, the Psalms are not written chronologically. Psalm 1 doesn't, okay, then let's write Psalm 2. Then they didn't get together and say, hey, did anybody write another one? Okay, Psalm 3. They're written in five sections of the book. And as you go through there, it outlines the pilgrimage of the people of God. So while we're sitting at Psalm 88, we're reminded of Psalm 150. The same way that we're reminded of Revelation 21, which is where the nations are making a joyful noise to the God of our salvation. They're surrounding the throne. So the pilgrimage does not end at Psalm 88. It ends with us at the throne of Jesus Christ, praising him. But Psalm 88 is kind of what this life is like sometimes. We're still in this pilgrimage because we have not yet attained to the fullness of our salvation. We have not attained and we have not been placed into the glory of God. But notice Matthew 27. It says this in verse number 45. <clears throat> this is up on the screen. It says, now from the sixth hour, this is when Christ was on the cross, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 88 points us to Jesus because on the cross, as darkness covered the land, Jesus stepped into our darkness so that we could step into his marvelous light. He was momentarily rejected so that we could be eternally received. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. He experienced the wrath of the Father so that we could experience the love of the Father. He paid the price for sin's debt, which is darkness, so that we could live in the light of the Father. Psalm 88 points us to Jesus. And if he would not abandon us in the midst of his darkness, 
What makes you think that he will abandon you in the midst of yours? If Jesus did not abandon us in the midst of his darkness, why would he abandon you in the midst of yours? As we cry out in the same way that the psalmist did in Psalm 88, we can find hope in Jesus Christ. Because even though we feel abandoned and rejected, we know that ultimately Jesus was on our behalf. We didn't begin there, but we can end there. I would say this week, this month, as you feel abandoned in the midst of darkness, write down your prayers to God. Share those with somebody. Write down your sadness. Write down your pain in the same way that he man did right here. And then pray those things to God the Father. He wants to hear from you. Jesus Christ identified with us in our darkness. He had to do that by taking on flesh, the flesh of a human. He took our sin on himself he lived the life that we were designed in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to live. He died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin in Genesis chapter 3. He was put on a cross. He was forsaken by God the Father so that we could be forgiven. But he rose victorious from that dark hole in the ground where he is sitting right now at the right hand of God the Father. That is our hope in Christ and in Christ alone. So if you find yourself in darkness, fall upon his mercy. Fall upon the sacrifice of Christ. If you're like, man, I've, I've never done that. Repent of your sin this morning. Don't live in eternal darkness. Survive in temporary darkness. But have your eternal hope in Jesus Christ and him alone.